good to see y'all. Let's pray. Lord, thank you for today. Thank you for uh, your word. Thank you for uh, freedom. I ask you to remind us uh, again, always, to uh, listen to your word, to see what it says to us, how you want to um, influence our life for your glory. We ask you for the loved ones who have been lost, their families are just still dealing with it. And it is uh, difficult that you would comfort them, help us to encourage them. Uh, for all those going back to school and those in teaching positions, that you would just uh, give them patience, that they would be an influencer for Christ. Thank you in Jesus' name. Amen. Um, we are continuing on in uh, the the uh, Sermon on the Mount, the Beatitudes, and uh, oh, by the way, uh, uh, how many of y'all have seen or heard that song, The Rich Man North of Richmond? Have you? If you haven't, you need to look that up on YouTube and, and, and uh, play it, just one guy singing by himself. It's become a, a, even Ben Shapiro said it was kind of the poor man's anthem or the common sense anthem uh, of the United States right now. So uh, if you haven't listened to it or looked at it, um, I think in six days it has 25 million views. If you know anything about how that works, that's pretty phenomenal. Um, so uh, in what a picture it paints of where we are in America, even though most people don't want, a, a lot of people know, I shouldn't say most people, because the common people resonate with it. That's why it's gone out of the roof in just a few days on all the music charts. Uh, just one guy in his backyard singing in a microphone, playing the guitar by himself with his dog sitting around the yard. Um, phenomenal. Uh, but uh, anyway, uh, it shows that there's still a lot of people in our country that maybe have a little common sense left about them. It's just unfortunate they're not in the places of power. <laughs> uh, so just keep praying for our country. Um, we are there on that, actually, that idea this morning in Matthew chapter 7, verse 7 through uh, 12, that little snippet there before we uh, go to the next thing. And it's talking about praying. And uh, basically what this is today is not just, um, not just an explanation of these verses per se, but it's really a whole philosophy of praying is what we're going to look at. Uh, because when you start talking about ask and seek and knock, how does that really work in the sovereignty of God, uh, which is a pretty serious issue? So uh, I might throw a lot of stuff out there that you haven't thought about yet, but we need to think about um, how does that work exactly? And I can't honestly say I, I don't have all that figured out yet. I know it says to do this, and I know this and this and this, but I don't know... That's that mysterious part about God that we'll never probably be able to grab. But yet we have instructions on um, how to do it. You know, Niebuhr's uh, synopsis of praying has been quoted how many times? You know, he says, God, give us the serenity to accept what we cannot change. Uh, give us the courage to change what we can change and the wisdom to know the difference. Um, and when you're talking about praying and how to pray, one little guy in a cartoon showed it that uh, the little boy is praying and he's kind of frustrated with God and because he's been praying and things haven't happened. 
So out loud, he says to God, he says, well, number one, Aunt Harriet still doesn't have a husband. Uncle Herbert doesn't have a job. And Daddy's hair is still falling out. And I'm getting tired of praying for this family because nothing seems to be happening. Sometimes that's the way it is. I, I, I was reminded of a situation when uh, Dallas Theological Seminary in uh, uh, Dallas, Texas, was founded in 1924, and not long afterwards, they were having some serious financial issues, and they were about to foreclose on the school. And um, uh, I used to go down there. I didn't go to that school, but it wasn't far from Criswell. I'd go down to the library sometimes and uh, knew some of the people there. And, but they were about to close on it on that particular day. So some of the leaders of the school were together praying that, you know, God would intervene. And uh, Dr. Harry Ironside was one of those. And if you knew anything about him, he was almost always kind of to the point. So in his prayer, he and Lewis Schaefer, who was one of the founders of the school, they were praying. And Ironside said, God, we know you own the cattle on a thousand hills. Sell some of them and bring us the money. (laughs) Well, while they were praying, there was a knock on the door. And unbeknown to them, the secretary who knew some of the financial situation of the school, she had a check in her hand because a, a Texas rancher had brought it to her in that very hour and said, Listen, uh, I had two carloads of cows that I just sold. I had this business deal, and evidently God didn't want it to come through, so here's the check. If y'all can use it, all right. If you can't, you can have it. And walked away. So her knowing the situation knocked on the door and finally got the door open and Schaefer came to the door and, he, and she handed him the check and so he looked at it and he was familiar with the name of the man because he was a large cattle rancher and uh, when he looked down at it the, the, the amount of the check was exactly what they needed so he told Harry he said Harry God heard you he sold the cows and we had the money doesn't always work out that way you know and that's what the issue is in, in chapter 7, and Jesus has given us these instructions. He says, ask. And I'll go ahead and tell you, we'll never get finished with this today. Um, uh, but please just go look at the online stuff. There's a lot at the end that, that kind of breaks down. This is exactly what he says to do. He says, ask. And, you know, he'll do this, and he'll do this, and he'll do this. So because it's the philosophy of it, we, we probably won't get quite that far. Uh, but I thought it was important enough to deal with this issue first because when you look at the whole concept of prayer, there's a lot of the stuff in there that we just, we, it's mysterious. There is no clear answer to that. We know this and we know this and we know this, but how you put it together? He says, Ask and it shall be given to you. Seek and you shall find. Knock and it shall be opened unto you. For everyone that asks receiveth. And he that seeketh findeth. And to him that lock, knocketh it shall be opened. What man is there of you who is a son shall ask him for a loaf, will give him a stone? If you shall ask for a fish, will he give him a serpent? If you then, being evil, know how to good give, good, give good gifts unto your children, how much more shall your Father who is in heaven give good things to them that ask him? So Jesus is saying, you know, something's going to happen. So he's telling us to pray. But how does that work out exactly? You know, uh, it, it's tough. We say prayer changes things. What does it change? Now, I'm I'm thinking out loud with you here, okay? So don't judge me yet. All right? If prayer changes things, how exactly 
Are we to trust in God's sovereignty, that he knows everything, that he's got everything in control, but yet somehow our praying is going to change that? You see, how, see when you start thinking about it, it just kind of gives you a, a, a brain hurt. Okay, is God sovereignty? Absolutely. So how does that work out? You know, we're going to see a couple of instances where exactly uh, somebody prayed and God not well, this is the hard part, okay? God knew this was going to happen. Did he really change his mind? Or how does that work out? You see, because we say prayer changes things, but if God is sovereign, does he really change anything? Does he really change anything? Do we take it and say, well, God, because you know everything already, there's really no use in us playing anyway. I know, I know people like that. It's fatalism. Oh, you know, it's, it's Islam. You know, they say, well, if Allah wills it, then we have nothing to do about it. You know, so, you know, you, you see how that, you see how complicated this is? When you start saying, ask and it shall receive, do this and do this and do this. Is God waiting for us to ask before he can finish his plan? That's what openness theology is. That's what they say. God really doesn't know. You know, you're asking, God's kind of waiting to see. Oh, he knows what has happened and he knows what's going on in the moment, but he doesn't know what the future holds. There's a lot of that nonsense in in Christianity today, it's called openness theology, where, well, no, God doesn't really know yet. No, I think God knows. So how does this thing work out? You see the complication? <laughs> it's there. You say, well, I never thought about it. You might be better off. Just, just keep praying, you know, because we're supposed to pray. If the course of events finally turns on the wisdom or the perseverance and, and necessary fervor of our prayers, you know, if all of what's going to happen hinges on us, what? In the course of events, if that happens, then apparently there are many things that could go on in one fashion that only go on because we pray. If that's the case, then if we don't pray, then it doesn't mean that, then it's not going to happen. Uh, I, I don't agree with that exactly, but you see, we're throwing these things out there because this is what we're going to deal with. <laughs> so is prayer changing something? Or does it mean that in govern, God's sovereign, sovereign just means control. When we say God is sovereign, it means he's in control of everything. You know, uh, asymmetrically, he, he's, you can't blame me for the evil in the same way as you blame me for the good because th there's an issue there. We won't deal with that one today. Sway over the whole is so contingent on our intercession. It's just God waiting on us to pray before he can do anything? No, I don't think so. But how you work that out? You know, God says to pray, but yet he's sovereign. So if he's sovereign and in control, do we even need to pray anyway? Well, Jesus says how many times you need to pray. And he's teaching us to pray. So how do we do that? How does that work? That God's sovereignty itself cannot finally be trusted? You mean to tell me God's not sovereign enough that he's got to wait on me to pray before he can do something? No. I don't think that. But you see, when you start thinking through this thing, how do we handle that? How does that work? I doubt if anybody in here holds that position. There are some out there that hold that. I don't think we're there. We say, oh, well, you know, if, if I don't pray, God can't do it. <laughs> no, I, I don't think that. Uh, how does that work exactly? All right. You say, I already have a brain hurt. Yeah. Some of these things are complicated. You know, they are. On the other hand, if prayer doesn't change things, if in fact exactly the course of events is all determined beforehand, before the foundation of the world, if that is only the way it is, then why are we praying anyway? You know, if you say, 
well, God, you're in control and you know everything, so there's no really any use of me praying. Then why do you want to pray anyway? Jesus says pray. Paul said we need to pray. Uh, so you see, and you start thinking through this thing. How does it work? There is a passion in intercessory prayer in the Scripture. Absolutely. But it's not like this. It's not, okay, well, I'm supposed to pray. You told me to pray. I'm going to forget this. God, you're going to depend on me to pray to get this thing to work out right. I know you ordained it before the foundation of the world. I know it's my job to pray, so I'm going to just go pray. You see, some people operate that way. Uh, you know, that's the way it is. So here we go. I don't think it, that's the way it works. All right. But again, we're thinking through it. How does that work exactly? So does prayer change things or does it not? That's the question. Jesus said to ask and things will happen. Seek and you'll find something, you know. So how does that work? Sometimes we ask and we don't get it. A lot of times we're seeking something and we don't find it. But he just said, yes, that's the truth. How does that work? That's why when you come to the very end of this thing, it's contingent on a few things. Number one, he's not saying that to the world. He's saying that to his children, believers, okay? Uh, that's the end. When I can't go there yet, all right? I don't think we're going to get there. On the face of it, you might be able to make an initial case either way. You know, you could say, okay, it could be that way. It could be that way. Which way is it? How does it work? On the face of it, it could be that. Prayer changes things. How about Jacob? Did some events change? Oh, it, it, absolutely. It, it did. Jacob, you remember Jacob was praying and he wrestled with God. And he said, oh, no, I'm not going to turn you loose till you do this. And something happened. You know, you, you can see at least 40 instances in the Bible where that kind of thing happened, where God changed his mind. From our perspective, he changed his mind, not that he didn't already know. We'll look at one of them when Moses, you know, David giving his testimony in 40. He said, I waited and I waited on the Lord and he heard me and he delivered me. He set me in a brand new place. That's exactly what he says. He took me out of the miry bog. Elijah, he prayed that it didn't rain and it didn't rain. Then he prayed that it did rain and it rained. You see, you have all these situations that you have to work through. What did James say about that? He was a common man just like us. Common person just like us. Same thing. Applies all of us. He prayed fervently, and the Lord heard his prayers. On the other hand, does prayer change things? Jesus taught us. What did he say? What? Your will be done. Okay, that's what Jesus said in the Lord's Prayer, right? Father in heaven, hallowed be thy name. Your will be done. We went through that, you know, a few weeks ago. In Gethsemane, Jesus is there about to die. The heart of his whole prayer was, not as my will, but your will be done. Jesus already knew that he was going to the cross. He already knew he was going to die. And he's praying and he says, is it possible for the cup to pass? He already knows. You know, basically, oh, no, I'm going to die. But I'm praying, is it possible for this to happen? Paul prays fervently three times for the removal of this thorn in his flesh. Satan. Paul prays along such lines. Sometimes they're healed. Sometimes God has grace. Not always. H how does all that work out? Well, one way or the other, God answers and God's will will be done. You know, basically that's what we think. But how does it work out? Even those who cry in an intercessory fashion. Man, we're praying for somebody. We're praying for somebody. In the throne of Revelation, look what it says there. It says what? 
Well, you can ask for relief all you want to, but it's not time yet. Wow. You say, my goodness, this is a little more difficult. It is. You know, because people ask, you know, why are you praying anyway if God's in control? If God's going to do what he's going to do anyway, do you think he's got to wait on you to pray for it to happen? There's some instances where that's exactly the case. Or should we say prayer changes us? That's what we say a lot of times, right? That's one of our avenues. Well, you know, it's not necessarily that the events are going to change, but in that, I'm changed. Now, think about that for a minute. Is it really the best way for God to do something if there's a circumstance that we're praying fervently about and none of that ever changes, but it changes us? Isn't there a simple way for God to change us? Why don't we just pray, God change me? <laughs> Instead of going through all that, why don't you just pray, God change me? So you can't just say, oh, well, it's only to change. No, there's a simple way to do that if that's all it's about, right? I mean, if you're going to look at it that way, that could be. That could be a, a better formula, easier way. Say, God, change me. There are all kinds of instances in the Scripture where we're praying for something else, right? And if we say such praying, the prayer changes us, but does not affect the course of anything else, we would say, it would be simpler, God, if you just change me. You know, I'm praying for this thing, and it doesn't happen, but I'm supposed to be changed through the process. I'm not saying that never happens that way. Then it really does seem like a, 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 a long way around to get us changed. Instead, we can say, God, I need change in here. You know, change, just change me. Intercessory prayer. You remember Moses? This is just one instance. There's, there's quite a number of them, about 40 at least, where this has happened. And, and the translation says, and God changed his mind. And God relented. And a lot of people say, well, that means God doesn't know. So he's waiting. No. Uh, you know the setting, right? Moses, is, they've been delivered out of uh, Egypt, and he's going up on the mountain to get the tablets. And while they're up there, the people go crazy, and Aaron, bless his heart, he's trying to make a happy religion. <laughs> he's made an idol. Of all that God's already disclosed about who he is, he goes and tries to make God look like a cow. You remember the situation, right? I mean, that's what the deal was. And God is irate. He says, don't even pray for them. Go down there. And remember the terminology he uses, he so distances himself from them. He says to Moses, the people you brought. He said, they ain't my people. That's what he says in the context. He says, the people you let out. And God said, I, I don't really have anything to do with them. And then Moses goes and said, well, wait a minute. You made a promise. Are you not going to hold on your promise? And, you know, go back and read this whole thing sometime this afternoon. It's amazing that that's exactly what's going on. <coughs> he tells them all these things. I want to go down to the other part. <coughs> Here's Aaron's perspective. Tomorrow there'll be a... We're just going to have a party. We're going to make God look like a cow, but we're going to serve the Lord at the same time. That's where we are in America. Everything you can even mention is going on. Oh, that's how we praise in Jesus. And it's so far from what God says. He said, I don't have anything to do with that. And a lot of it is church stuff. That's exactly it. He still thinks that somehow he's going to be faithful to the covenant of God and making God look like a cow and worshiping him. That's, that's what he's going to do. That's what he does, right? Remember what he does when God confronts Well, I just threw it in the fire and a cow came out. How about that one? Huh? Is that what you do? You just take all you go and throw it in the fire and automatically a cow comes out. No, somebody had to form it. So he's going to marry something, a pagan influence, 
something that God has already disclosed about himself and make one happy religion so that everybody's happy. And look what God says. Go down because your people, not my people. You see, boy, God is pretty mad. <laughs> He's really mad here, right? All of this is remarkable when God says, oh, no, no, I don't have anything to do with them. And he's pretty much saying, I'm done with them. Moses, I'm fitting to destroy them all. I'm fitting to do away with them. That's what he says. Not my people whom I brought up, but your people. Look how many times he emphasizes. The nature of the argument is stunning. Lord, why should your anger burn against your people who you brought out of Egypt? At your great power, at your mighty hand. God, does God have to be reminded? No. So why is that? Look what he says. Moses is praying, talking to God. Turn from your fierce anger. Relent. Change your mind. And do not bring disaster on your people. What is the implication here? Are you a promise-keeping God? You said you were going to do this. And now you're going, going back on your word? Are you not? You promised, you promised in your name. You promised that you were going to do that. Will you keep your own covenant promise or not? That's his argument. That's what he goes to God and says, wait a minute, you promised this. Are you going to do it or are you not going to do it? Then the Lord relented and did not bring his people the disaster that he threatened. Now, boy, there's a, there's a thousand questions we could ask right here. We just don't have time. You say, well, why are you making us think that way? Because we need to. You know, it's an issue. How does this thing work? It's one of about 40 instances in the Bible where it says God relented. He changed his mind. You know? There's a lot of things that God says, if you do this, then I'll do this. He's really not changing his mind. It's contingent. He says, okay, people, you're my people. If you do this, I'm going to do this. If you don't do this, then I'm going to do that. So it's not exactly as he changes his mind a lot of the times, but in this one it looks like he said, well, he changed his mind. In some theological circles, that's where we get this idea that they've constructed now. They call open God theology, where God doesn't know what's going to happen. He's just waiting to see, Terry, what you're going to do, because he doesn't know the future. He knows what happened in the past. He knows what's going on in the present. But he really doesn't know what's going to happen in the future yet. I disagree. Absolutely, God knows. Absolutely. Prayer changes things, or does it? On the face of it, certainly it seems to change things there. When Moses is praying... In talking to God, and God said, okay, I'm not going to do that. Well, there's a whole lot behind that one. In Ezekiel, boy, go back and read Ezekiel chapter 22. Ezekiel is a prophet. He's in Babylon. The, the children of Israel have been carried off into captivity, and he's there. He's not quite yet in the, the priesthood yet. He's not old enough. You usually didn't get to until you were about 30, and he's about 25. But he's there with the people, the Israelites who were... Uh, transported out of Jerusalem to Babylon. So he's in captivity. So the whole chapter is talking about how bad God's people have been and why they're in captivity. Okay? That's what the whole chapter is. And then in verse 30, he comes along and it says, This is what the sovereign Lord says when the Lord has not spoken. Now he comes up and he says, The people of the land, that's what he does in the whole chapter. He says, They're about like our country. They're taking advantage of everybody. Nobody's doing the right thing. The leaders are crooks. I mean, it is horrible. That's why they're in captivity. And then he comes along in verse 30, and look what God says. I look for someone among them who would build up the wall. 
who would stand in the gap. And stand before me in the gap on behalf of the land so that I would not have to destroy it. But I didn't find anybody. He had a Moses. He knew Moses was going to stand in the gap. And that's exactly what Moses did. So he was ready to do this. And he, he does that. And Moses stands in the gap. You know, it says the same thing in Second Chronicles, remember? He says, the eyes of the Lord run to and fro throughout the whole world, trying to find one person whose heart is right with him so that he can do mighty things through them. Seems like the same thing. He says, I'm looking for somebody. I didn't find anybody. So where are y'all? You're in captivity. Nobody's praying. Nobody's telling the truth. Nobody's doing anything. That's why they're there. Boy, that's pretty strong there, isn't it? Very strong. Dramatic. God's looking through the land for someone to intercede so that he would not destroy the land. You say, well, I don't understand that. That's the mysterious part of it. There's parts of this we will not be able to understand in our lifetime. That's what it says. Mysterious. I don't understand that. Right? Part of this theological condemnation is grounded in his sovereignty, his perception, that there is no one there to intercede, and he knows that. You know, remember Job? When Satan confronted him, he said, oh, no, no, go ahead. I know Job. I know what he's going to do. Go ahead. You can do everything but kill him. Why? Because he knows. God said, I don't have anybody out there. I don't have anybody to do that. Where, where is it? No one to teach the truth. No one to build up the wall. I found no one. And look where they ended up. In captivity in Babylon. How is it already 930? We just started. What heavens is going on? If you take that back to Moses' situation, God knows Moses is going to intercede. So he said, okay. Did, did Moses change God's mind? No, I don't think that. And I don't know how that works. I mean, I don't know. Jesus is praying that the cup would pass from him, but he knows all the time that he's going to die. So you see the, you see the, the difficulty here? But he says, ask, and you know, you'll get something. Seek, and you'll find something. He knows Moses will intercede. God is interweaving patterns beyond our conception. Man, all the stuff Meredith's been going through these last two or three weeks, some of you know some of about it, some of you don't. She said, God's going to do something. Nothing happens without a price. That's her take. Now, I just want to hit somebody. No? You know? But that's it. The slimmest glimmerings of the intricacy of the pattern that God in His sovereignty is weaving that we can't see. That's that mysterious part about it. I don't know. I don't know how that all works. Three things that we have to remember when you think about this. Number one, God is absolutely, unequivocally sovereign. Nothing happens that He doesn't know about a million years before it happens. He has to okay whatever happens to His children. That's what that means. Boy, that's tough when things happen that we don't really like. When we lose loved ones, when we lose jobs, when people are evil toward us. You say, God has to okay that? Yep. That's what it says. That's what happened to Job. God had to okay it. I don't understand that. I don't either. There's some of that. Absolutely. We cannot duck that. Ephesians 1 says, oh, no, no, no. For his whole purpose, the whole chapter is talking about that. That's exactly what it says, right? He who works out all things according to his purpose. But he says, still, he says, I want you to pray. I got it all in control, but you need to pray. Well, if he got it all in control, why do I don't need? I don't know, but he said, do that. 
You know, somehow he works that thing out as to he wants us to pray and he's going to take care of things anyway, but we're supposed to pray. You know, that's what it is. You know, you know, a lot of these people say, well, you know, especially from an evangelistic perspective, well, if God is sovereign, I'm not even going to pray to somebody to be saved. Either they'll be there saved or be not. That's not what Paul says. He says, work out your own salvation with fear and trembling. Why? As God works in you the will to fulfill his purpose. You say, oh, my goodness, this is just too complicated. It is complicated. <laughs> you know, it is a little bit, eh? If you don't believe that, you either resort very, very clever exegesis and you use a pair of scissors to cut out Romans 8, 28. Remember what that verse says? What? Everything works together for the good, for those who love the Lord. Not for everybody, for those who love the Lord. The Scripture says that he can turn the heart of kings. Absolutely. If he can do that, and anyone else for that matter, anywhere he wants to, then you cannot even suppose that God is sovereign over those big events, but at the level of our little life, he's waiting on us to pray for it to happen. <laughs> you see how that works? Well, then why are we praying? Because he said that, that, that's how that works. It's that mysterious thing. I don't know that. I just know he's in control, but I'm supposed to be praying. That's what, that's what it means. You say, well, until I understand it, I'm not going to pray, then you're never going to pray. Because you're never going to get all that down, you know. <laughs> Adrian Rogers was right. He's reserved a kind of special place that there it is so tied to our independence, to our freedom. Absolutely. That God himself declares hands off and doesn't quite know how it's going to turn out. It's very difficult to believe that in a lot of the biblical texts. Does God know? Yes. Should we pray? Absolutely. God's in control. He says, ask. Seek. Knock. And something's going to happen. Jesus himself can say, why are you? He said, wait a minute. Why are y'all babbling on about you think God doesn't know what you need already? That's what Paul says. Get to the point. What did Ironside say? God, you got the cows. Sell them. We need some money. That's to the point, right? You go through all this stuff, just get to the point. God, you know what we need. We need this. Be specific. We got to quit. We may have to come back next week because we're not even halfway. How about that? Anyway, let's pray. Keep praying because that's what he said. Maybe we have a little better understanding by the time it's over with next week. We'll finish it then, all right, because we're not halfway yet, unfortunately. Go ahead and download the notes and read them, and you'll be ahead of the game, eh? Danny, thank you, Danny, for doing that for us. There are a few that look at them every now and then. Let's pray. Lord, thank you. Thank you that you are mysterious. Thank you that it is beyond our comprehension. Or if it was not, then we would be equal to you. Father, thank you that you care. Thank you that you give us a chance to converse with you on a personal level. Thank you that you're concerned. Thank you that you're sovereign, that you are in control, even beyond our comprehension. Thank you for loving us. In Jesus' name, amen.